Hello and welcome, and thank you for rejoining us as we walk through the book of Revelation. Last week we looked at the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 1, and today we're going to look at the remainder of chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. In the mid-20th century, T.H. White wrote a book called The Once and Future King, which was about King Arthur and was based on a 15th century book by Sir Thomas Mallory, and in Sir Thomas Mallory's book, there was an inscription on Arthur's tomb that said, Here lies Arthur, king once and king to be. In other words, Arthur had reigned as king and died, but one day, somehow, he would return again to once again reign as king. And a lot of times, if we're honest, that's really how we think about Jesus. We might affirm a belief in the resurrection, but the way that we talk, the way that we act, the way that we live is really as though here lies Jesus, king once and king to be. As though Jesus, even if he's not currently dead, is somehow absent, that he's not currently reigning, that we live in between two reigns of Jesus Christ. And yet what the book of Revelation continually and constantly asserts throughout the book is that Jesus is not once the past and future king, he is the present king as well. That yes, he's going to return one day to rule on earth, but that does not mean he is not currently ruling over the earth even now. And we see that here in Revelation chapter 1 as John opens up with his first vision that he receives at the start of the book. And so if you have your Bibles there, please open them up to Revelation chapter 1 and we will read verses 9 through 20. I, John your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are, are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There are two keys to placing this vision that begins in this passage and runs through chapter five and serves as the introduction to the book of Revelation. The first is the phrase on the Lord's day. It's likely that John is using the phrase with a double meaning. First is the way that some Christians use it even today as a reference to Sunday. And so this vision takes place on an ordinary Sunday, 
making this vision for John very much present tense. John is describing events that are taking place in his present and therefore in our past. But the Lord's Day is also likely an allusion to the Day of the Lord, the common Old Testament name for the eschatological period where God would come to earth and put all things right. So this vision also seems to be communicating that the Day of the Lord, though obviously not fully realized, has been inaugurated. The clock is ticking, events are in motion, the ball in Times Square counting down to midnight has started to drop. Aslan is on the march. Secondly, Jesus commands John in verse 19 to write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. In some ways, this is an outline of the whole book. As we said last time in looking at verses 1 through 8, Revelation contains some things that are already past, some things that are present for every age of the church, and still some things that are yet future and will be until Jesus finally and physically returns. But it also lets us know what is going on here. What John sees in this vision is what is. In other words, it's present for him and past for us. But it's also what will take place after this. It's therefore present for us and for every age of the church and therefore future for John. And what we see is in this passage is three aspects of Christ's present rule because of who he is. And first of all, we see that Jesus reigns over our circumstances because we are in him. Jesus reigns over our circumstances because we are in him. Verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John attributes three qualities to life in Jesus, affliction, kingdom, and endurance. This is one of the many passages of scripture that denies the prosperity gospel, that idea that the Christian life is characterized by health and wealth and prosperity, that God's ultimate good for us is physical blessing. Rather, John asserts that the Christian life is characterized by affliction or suffering, or really the word that we normally think of in terms of revelation, tribulation. John is, of course, experiencing affliction while in exile on Patmos, but he does not see his experience as unusual, but as common. He is a partner in affliction with his audience who are also afflicted. Tribulation isn't something that believers in Jesus Christ should hope to avoid, but rather something that they should expect to endure. And that's because while there is affliction in Jesus, there is also endurance in Jesus. We have this faulty picture that Jesus suffered and died in order to keep us from suffering and dying. But that's just not true. If it were, Jesus would not have said, as he did in Luke 9, 23, that if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Or he wouldn't have told the disciples in some of his last words before going to the cross and at the Last Supper in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. The hope of the gospel is not avoidance of suffering, but endurance of suffering. It's not avoidance of death, but resurrection to new life. 
Jesus did not suffer and die so that we might not suffer and die, but rather so that we might endure suffering and even death, and yet emerge victorious over death to new resurrected life, even as he did. The Lord never promised us an easy life characterized by health and wealth and prosperity. And remember that John is not writing this from some ivory tower removed from the suffering of this life, but rather he is writing from the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was in exile in a forced labor camp precisely because of his faith, because he refused to stop preaching Christ. Age had clearly done nothing to mellow the man who 60 years or so earlier had said in Acts 4:19 through 20, along with Peter, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Or as he said in Acts 5.29, along with Peter and the rest of the apostles, we must obey God rather than people. But John's point isn't just that Christians will experience suffering or even that they will endure suffering, but also that the experience of suffering is part of what it means to be a Christian. F.F. Bruce said John's placing of the kingdom between the tribulation and the patient endurance underlines a recurrent New Testament theme that the patient endurance of tribulation is the way into the kingdom of God. What John knew and what he wants his readers to know both in the first century and in the 21st century is that suffering does not indicate that Jesus is somehow absent or inactive. Rather, our suffering is in Jesus because we are in Jesus and he is sovereign over both our suffering and our endurance of that suffering. And not only that, but enduring tribulation is precisely what it looks like to belong to the kingdom here and now on this side of Christ's return. Jesus himself tells us that when he opens up his Sermon on the Mount, describing the life characterized by God's blessing, the life that is described as kingdom life with the countercultural qualities of the Beatitudes. Those who are blessed, those who experience kingdom life are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are persecuted. Sometimes our tribulation will be persecution or war. Other times it will be disease or famine. But whatever it looks like, however much like the death of Jesus it might feel, the encouragement is that the life of Jesus is powerful enough to overcome it. And so Jesus reigns over our circumstances because we are in him. But secondly, John tells us that Jesus reigns over the church because he is in us. Jesus reigns over the church because he is in us. Verses 12 through 16 of Revelation chapter 1 say, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze that it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength.
John hears a voice, turns, and sees one like a son of man standing among seven golden lampstands. The lampstands are an allusion to the book of Exodus where the Israelites were to make a lampstand with seven branches, what eventually becomes known as the menorah. And we don't need to wonder what the lampstands refer to because Jesus tells us in verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And as we said last week in reference to the seven spirits, seven is a number of completion and perfection. The seven churches are not a reference merely to seven historical first century churches, but a reference to the church throughout all time and space, the universal Catholic church. The one like a son of man is, of course, a reference to Jesus. The son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself throughout the Gospels, and it is a title with great messianic and eschatological importance. And we can see some parallels between John's vision and Daniel's vision back in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, where Daniel says, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. John does not refer, just refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. He goes on to describe Jesus, and the description of Jesus also points to his messianic, eschatological, and even divine nature. And once again, John seems to be drawing from the book of Daniel. His vision is very similar to Daniel's. And the description of Jesus echoes Daniel 10 verses 5 through 6, which says, I looked up and there was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like this brilliance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude." first thing John mentions is the first thing Daniel mentions. Jesus is dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. This is not the robe of the high priest, but the robe of the king. Yet another reference to Christ's present and future reigns. John then says his hair was white as wool and white as snow. White was symbolic of purity and wisdom. And it was a reference that John's audience would have very clearly understood because white wool was a major industry in Western Asia Minor, the churches to which he was writing. And it was also a reference to deity. In Daniel 7 verse 9, it says, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. John is equating Jesus not just with the Son of Man, but also with the Ancient of Days. And as John sees this vision, he was probably drawn back to another experience 60 years earlier that he and Peter and James had had on the Mount of Transfiguration, where in Mark chapter 9, verse 3, it says, And Jesus' clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. 
Whereas John had seen Jesus partially revealed in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, here in this vision, he sees Jesus in fullness of his glory. John then says that Jesus' eyes were like fiery flame. Another reference to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, where the Son of Man's eyes were like flaming torches. It's a reference to his piercing insight right into the heart of man. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Similarly, the reference to his feet of bronze is also a reference to his role as judge and also comes from Daniel 10.6. The idea of the bronze being molten is a reference to his purity, the fact that he is pure in his judgments, but also to his glory since the bronze would shine. The blazing eyes and bronze feet are again united later in the book in Revelation 2, verse 18, to the, in the letter to the church at Thyatira, where it says, Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira, thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like a fine bronze. The letter to Thyatira goes on to say that Jesus knows everything about them. The fact that Jesus has flaming eyes and bronze feet means that he knows all, sees all, that he is the perfect judge, not only because he knows all, but because of the purity out of which he judges. And finally, John describes a voice like the sound of cascading waters, which equates the Son of Man, Jesus, with Yahweh himself. In Ezekiel 43, verse 2, and it says, I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent, and the earth shone with his glory. There are two more descriptors that come in verse 16, both of which also equate Jesus with Yahweh. First, there is the double-edged sword coming from his mouth. And back in Isaiah 11:4, it had said, He will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. The idea of a sword coming out of the mouth is one of judgment. Jesus is proclaiming judgment, and thus a sword could be said to be coming from his mouth. But it is also a symbol of his authority, especially in John's day. Grant Osborne points out that the sword was the primary image of Roman might, called the law of the sword. The message is that Rome is not in control, Christ is. And the same thing could be said in our day. The powers of this world, whether they be governments or viruses, are not in control. Christ is. And finally, Jesus is said to have a face shining like the sun at full strength, symbolizing the glory of God. Remember back in Exodus chapter 34, as Moses catches a glimpse of God's glory, just seeing God's back pass by him and he comes down from the mountain. It says, as Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he descended the mountain. He did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. And again, John's memory would have been drawn back to the Mount of Transfiguration where he again had seen Jesus partially in his glory. And in Matthew's account in chapter 17, verse 2, it says he was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. 
And furthermore, in both the Old Testament prophets and in Revelation, the sun is often an image of judgment. And thus the shining face is yet another reference to both the glory and the judgment of the Son of Man figure. And so what John's vision tells him and what it tells us is that one like a Son of Man who has taken up residence in the church is not just a human Messiah. He is also the Lord and Judge of the universe. He is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, who appeared to Moses, Daniel, and Ezekiel. The messianic servant that Yahweh had promised through Isaiah had turned out to be Yahweh himself. And it is this Son of Man who is among the church. And yet, not only is he among the church, he also surrounds and holds the church. Verse 16 says that he had seven stars in his right hand, a double, sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And again, we don't have to guess at what the symbolism is here because verse 20 explains what the stars are. They are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and they are held in Jesus' right hand. The right hand in Scripture symbolizes power and authority. And stars are often references to angelic or divine beings in the Old Testament. Here it is most likely a reference not only to angels who have been assigned to the churches, but also to the representatives of the churches themselves. The angels here stand in for the church as their representative. So by holding the stars or the angels in his right hand, Jesus is really holding the churches and therefore the church in his right hand. And the fact that Jesus is holding the church points to both his possession of the church and his protection of the church. Remember, Jesus had said back in John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The idea that Jesus rules over the church then, now, and forever is definitely a challenge reminding us that he is Lord and we must submit to him now. But it is also a comfort because what is true of individual Christians is true of the church as well. The church will throughout all generations experience affliction, but it will endure. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors a century ago, said Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. And so, yes, as I record this in mid-April 2020, due to the coronavirus, our church buildings sit empty. Giving is down Yes, ministries and ministers across the country are acutely feeling the effects of the current crisis. Yes, we are unsure of when this will all end, how things will look when it does. But the one thing we can be sure of is that Christ's church will not perish, for he holds it in the palm of his hand. And what this means is that he does not need our fleshly strategies and machinations to accomplish but only can be accomplished by him through his spirit. Because the last point these verses confirm is that Jesus is both able and willing to preserve 
his church. In this passage, Jesus is depicted as the warrior king preparing to go out to battle and render God's judgment on the earth. And it is a terrifying picture, or at least it would be, if he were not first depicted as the one who is among the lampstands and is the one who is holding the stars in his right hand. Because Jesus Christ rules over the church now because he is in us, that means he does not have to assert his rule over it on the day of the Lord. When he comes to wage war, he does not wage war against his church. He wages war for his church. Being held in his right hand, the church is protected from his judgment. And so John tells us that Jesus reigns over our circumstances, but also that he reigns over the church. That we are in Christ, but he is also in us because we are his body. And thirdly, and finally, John asserts that Jesus reigns even over death because he is not in the grave. Jesus reigns even over death because he is not in the grave. Verses 17 through 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Notice that John falls not just in awe, but as a dead man. He answers the question that Mercy Me famously asked, when we stand in his presence, will we stand or will we fall? We will fall. John falls as a dead man. And it's a sign that we are intended to view this vision of Christ as being a theophany. This is a manifestation of Yahweh. And John falls as a dead man because of the sheer weight of his glory. He cannot stand in Christ's presence when Christ is revealed in his glory. But Jesus reassures him with the most common divine command in all throughout Scripture. Do not fear. And he places his right hand on him, both to comfort him and to commission him to write. Then Jesus reveals himself with another reference to Yahweh. He is the first and the last. Another way of saying what we saw last week, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the source from which all things begin and the end to which all things are headed. He says he is also the living one, a reference to the repeated refrain in Scripture that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the living God, as opposed to all other gods who are not alive because they are false gods. And then he says that he was dead, but is alive forever and ever, and that he holds the keys of death and Hades. And this connects Jesus' right to rule with his death and resurrection. Jesus reigns over all things, including death and Hades, because he was dead and is alive forever and ever. Paul makes the same claim in the great resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, where in speaking of Jesus' death and resurrection and subsequent right to rule, he says in verses 25 and 26, For he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. And he makes it clear again in Ephesians chapter 1, where in verse 20 through 23, speaking of the resurrection power that is at work within us, says that God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, 
and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So John really brings it all back around full circle. We do not need to fear affliction because we are in Christ and Christ therefore reigns over our circumstances. But also and even more so, we do not need to fear our circumstances even to the point of death because Christ is not in the grave and therefore he reigns even over death. And that's what the key symbolizes. Jesus' authority over death. He has not completely abolished it yet. But he already has the keys of death and Hades, the realm of the dead. The New Testament refrain that Jesus was raised from the dead really means that he was raised out from among the dead ones, that Jesus had descended to the realm of the dead and now he is resurrected out of the realm of the dead, the first in a series. We will still die because he has not yet abolished death. But since he has already He already has authority over death. It has no hold on us. Christ is the one who reigns, even to the point of having authority over death. Paul in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, after saying that Jesus had become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, goes on to say, For this reason God highly exalted him. Notice that's past tense. And gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day everyone will recognize that Jesus is Lord. But for those of us who recognize it now, those of us who have been united to him by his spirit, so that we are in him and he is in us who are therefore numbered among the stars protected in his right hand. We will escape his judgment and final death because our king reigns even over death. And this ultimately is what sets us free in times of crisis, whether that crisis is due to disease or plague or any other cause. Because we do not need to fear that we, what we may lose, our rights, our jobs, our stock portfolios, or even our lives. Because our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, reigns over all our circumstances to make sure that we endure current affliction and tribulation and enter his kingdom. He reigns over the church, protecting us and preserving us as his possession. And he reigns even over death, applying his victory over death to us that one day we may be raised to new life, even as he has been raised to new life. Thank you for joining us as we finished up Revelation chapter 1. Next time we will look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the letter to the church at Ephesus.